Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are going to continue the conversation on the fiscal snapshot. We have other topics to get to today as well, though. John Daly is going to join us after the 1230 News, a disciplinary hearing for the two officers, which are known now as the Cuba Cops. And John will bring us up to date on how we got here and what we're expecting from that disciplinary hearing. We're also going to take a look at COVID-19 numbers in the United States. Some hospitals in some states are now reporting They are full, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in uh, some of the states such as Florida, California, also looking at huge increases in numbers as well. And on the lighter side of things, kind of, the bear population in this province and parts of uh, other parts of Western Canada as well. Some very interesting research when it comes to bears trying to live alongside people. What has led to this change in behavior? We're going to check in with a biologist who's the lead author of a new paper published on this. But first, as you've been hearing in the news, the federal Liberals say they expect nearly 2 million Canadians to remain without jobs this year as the pandemic continues and the deficit reaching the historic number of $343 billion. That is just part of the economic and fiscal snapshot released earlier today. Take a listen to just part of what Bill Morneau had to say. The road to economic recovery will be long and uncertain. Going forward, anything we do must be about growth, resilience, creating opportunity for those who are most impacted by this crisis. We need to invest in an economy that's greener and more diverse, an economy that creates opportunity for young people, for low-income Canadians, for people with disabilities, for women and that supports our most vulnerable, including LGBTQ2 communities, Indigenous peoples, Black Canadians, and other racialized people in our country. That was just part of Bill Morneau's comments earlier today. Let's bring in Jeremy Stone, Director of SFU's Community Economic Development Program. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We knew it was going to be bad. What's your response to what we're hearing as far as the deficit and what the road ahead looks like? Well, I mean, I, I think it's expected, obviously, um, you know, to be able to deal with a countrywide crisis of this magnitude would require a, a ton of investment. Um, you know, I think it's a bit unfortunate that um, we've had to invest so much money without necessarily creating economic development. Um, But that's the nature of this crisis. Because it had to be done so quickly and because this is something we've not dealt with before? Well, yeah, and I just think that, um, you know, whenever you are trying to uh, stabilize yourself versus a crisis, it's really just about pouring money into today. It's not about investing into tomorrow. And so because we were just trying to help you know, employees and small businesses stay afloat, uh, we put a, a ton of money in it. And it's very different, I think, than when you're investing into, you know, a public works project or, you know, doing a, a, an entrepreneurship program or something where we actually have lots of small business growth come out of that investment. And so, you know, it's going to be harder, I think, to recoup those losses than it would be if this was a, a future looking uh, investment. And so do you get any idea then on what point we shift into that to not only trying to help people and just help people stay afloat, but doing, like you said, economic recovery and incentive programs and ways to actually bring that growth back? Yeah, I mean, I think we should be already doing it. We should have been doing it, you know, once the magnitude of the crisis was obvious. 
And, and I think a lot of um, people are working on that. You know, Community Futures uh, throughout uh, uh, British Columbia, it's an organization that works with small businesses throughout the province. You know, organizations like that have been working very closely with small businesses, helping new entrepreneurship, trying to deal with some of the fallout. But I do think that we need a more concerted strategy starting yesterday to say, okay, for businesses that are closing down or getting near to closing down, how do we support you in transitioning those assets to new businesses or um, or help you retire and then invest in a new entrepreneurship on a parallel track to fill vacant storefronts and to, to help you know communities that maybe have lost a major employer. And when we talk about the measures that were brought out, CERB being one of them, and we understand, like you said, this was a pandemic. Government needed to act quickly and they needed to do something to help people. What about the transition then to figuring out uh, getting people back to work? Because the number today is saying that 2 million Canadians will likely remain out of work this year because of the pandemic. What about the shifting to trying to get people back at work? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's tough. And, you know, I'm, I'm a really, you know, lefty kind of guy. Like, I'm really supportive of, you know, programs that, that deal with people who are, are in crisis and trying to meet their needs. At the same time, though, you know, I, I work a lot throughout the province, and I hear lots of businesses, especially in rural areas, saying, we can't actually hire jobs right now because people are on CERB. They don't necessarily want to get off. And and I think that at some point, um, you know, we do need to possibly step down payments. You know, that might be a good way to, to help bridge people back to work and, and get them in um, to, to open and available jobs. But at the same time, I, I do think that we have to be supporting businesses, most importantly, so that they can expand and grow and adapt to, you know, an online environment, adapt to um you know, the, the different changes that are happening in our cities where they have to, you know, have less people in their restaurants or less people in their stores. All of that adaptation needs to happen so that then, you know, we can create opportunities to grow again and hire those folks back. Well, a lot of people... I would go so far as to say everybody in one way or another has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. But when we're talking about workers, whether you've lost your job, had your hours reduced to have found yourself working from home instead of at the office, when we're looking at the working group, people who have had their jobs impacted, some new research shows that working mothers have been impacted even more so. Let's bring in Sylvia Fuller, a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. Sylvia, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, what were you looking at here or looking at this study or the, this uh, how moms, working mothers have been affected by this? So we were looking at people who had largely been employed when the pandemic hit. So these are folks who either had a job or had been working in the last year. And what we were doing was tracking the gap in the employment rate for mothers and for fathers. And we looked at that separately for uh, folks with little kids, preschool age, and those whose youngest child was elementary school, so 6 to 12. And what we were really concerned to see was, you know, as the pandemic was taking hold, so we tracked people from the end of February before it started really here until the end of May, which is the most recent data we had, would we see a change in that uh, employment rate among parents? And in fact, that is what we saw. So that suggests to us that more than dads, moms were really being pushed out of their jobs by the pandemic. And pushed out because childcare falls more to mothers than it does to fathers? 
Well, there's a couple of things going on. One one thing that does contribute to this pattern is that uh, mothers and dads, because they're men and women, sometimes tend to work in different kinds of jobs. And the jobs that uh, women were more often working in were particularly hard hit by the pandemic in those early months. So those face-to-face, in-person service sector jobs, working in retail, working in hospitality, places like that. So that so that helps explain it in part, just the fact that those kinds of jobs tended to be the hardest hit. But on top of that, yes, you have the daycares closing, the schools closing. <laughs> Suddenly, you have these kids who are too young to be left on their own, and somebody's got to be taking care of them. And if you're not able to work from home, and we see much bigger, much bigger growing gender gap for groups where working from home is less, less often an opportunity, um, somebody's got to be there to take care of them. And when push comes to shove, it was the mothers who were getting shoved. Which I found interesting in the in this study too, or this research looking at this, because it looks like you found too that in, in cases where it might have been easier for fathers to take on the childcare role or to adapt their jobs to make it to make that work, that doesn't mean they necessarily did it. Well, <laughs> there's we. I will say that we see less of a growing gap among university educated workers now. Part of that might be because university educated moms are having more flexible jobs and they're able to, you know, I mean, it was really hard, but to some extent you're able to manage juggling things if you're able to do your job at home while the kids, while the kids are at home. But I think we also have to remember that university educated dads also have more flexibility. So to some extent, I think the fact that there's less of a, uh, less of a gap growing among that group speaks not just to, you know, moms picking, having more flexibility, but also dads having more flexibility to be able to do that. But yes, I mean, overall, we are seeing a picture where even when we account for differences in the kinds of jobs that mothers and dads hold, uh, it's mothers who are still seeing this falling behind more and more in terms of their employment relative to dads. So dads are, you know, are not taking on that care burden to the same extent that moms are. Which my guess is didn't come as a huge surprise to you. No, I mean, we, we've known for a long time that mothers do more child care than dads do, even when both are working full time. So that's, that's a longstanding pattern. Now, there has been change in that over time. Men today, fathers today, are spending more time taking care of their kids and directly taking care of their kids than they used to in the past. So there's, there's no question that there's been change, but the overall pattern is still mothers doing more. So we weren't surprised to see that. And, of course, that's partly why we decided to look at the numbers. We wanted to see not just what we, you know, what everybody was talking about really and expecting to see, but what was the extent of it? You know, could we actually see this in the data and how big the problem was? And, I mean, the numbers are really, for some of these groups, really dramatic. So if you have, you know, we see the biggest gap for parents of school-age kids and among the less educated. And for that group, that gender gap in employment among the uh, among, between mothers and fathers grew more than 10 times between March and May. I mean, that is decades of progress wiped out in a matter of months. Uh, so what do you anticipate or what do you think we're going to see as we start getting more people back to work and start moving into some kind of a recovery? 
Well, this is a million-dollar question. We, Our last month where we could look at the data was really from the end of May, and that was when the economy was just starting to open up. And what I fear is that if we see the economy opening up, people getting back to work, but there isn't uh, adequate care provisions for people's kids, that you're actually going to see that situation get worse because employers are going to say, well, you know, we've got to get back to work. We need people to be, you know, in these jobs. And if you can't do it, well, I'm sorry, I need to hire somebody else to do, you know, to do that job. And even if we now have protections that say, well, you're not supposed to just lay somebody off. You're supposed to give them a leave and their job is there for you to come back to. Well, we know that those employment standards are just routinely violated at the bottom of the labor market. So I'm really worried about, you know, moms in those jobs getting uh, getting pushed out. And school is such a big issue. If we cannot c- rely upon schools opening full time, what are we going to do with the kids on those days where they're not in school? And so far, there's no coherent plan about this. It's it seems like governments are somehow just expecting, you know, parents and what that means in practice is often mothers to somehow suck it up and fill that gap however they can. And the result is going to be disastrous for those individual families as they lose those earnings. It's going to be disastrous for gender equity. And it's going to be a huge problem for the economy as a whole because working moms are an essential part of our economy. And if they can't get back to work, we're all in trouble. All right. Well, we will leave it there on that uh, not happy or high note, uh, but we'll be watching to see what happens. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, we have been focused on COVID-19 and the cost it is having on our country, both financially and on people in general. But let's take a, a moment now to take a look at substance abuse in this country. Some new numbers on that and showing that it costs Canada about $46 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B every year. Dr. Tom Tim Stockwell is the director of the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, also a psychology professor at the University of Victoria and joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Dr. Stockwell, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. A huge number when you look at this, $46 billion a year. So when we say that's what substance abuse costs Canadian society, what specifically are we talking about? Um, We're talking about, well, this is a massive project. Sorry, isn't it? Telejet going past my house. I'm closing the door. Um, I beg your pardon. That's we, okay. This is a massive project. We under there was about twelve people on the team, um, and we had to scour all the death data and all of kept by Statistics Canada, crime data, data on hospitalizations, all the surveys on how many drugs people are using, um, to, to count up. You know that. The impacts on productivity, impacts on crime, impact on health care and a few other categories. And we divided those costs among eight types of drugs. So we've got the legal drugs, alcohol, tobacco and now cannabis. And then we've got various mostly illegal ones, um, cocaine, amphetamines, opioid drugs. And we were able to make estimates for each province and territory in Canada for um, been doing this for several years now so this is just an update and when you break it down like that so let's look at the the legal drugs alcohol tobacco and now cannabis what percentage are we talking about there as far as the cost to canadians 
Um, that's about 70% of all the costs when you include those. And if you just look at alcohol and tobacco, it's around about 63% of the total. So cannabis is way down there as a contributor towards harms. The costs are pretty much... Uh, this is the year 2017 was the latest year we could get these data. So it's just pre-legalization. We expect the costs associated with cannabis to go right down after legalization. Um, but that, of course, remains to be seen um, because there's all sorts of issues about enforcement, black market cannabis and so forth. Right. And, and costs, what are we talking about? Are we talking about healthcare costs and people that are admitted to hospital uh, deaths? Are we talking about loss to the economy from lost work hours or do you, how do you break that down? All, all of that. So under healthcare, in the, in the healthcare bucket, we've got hospital admissions, we've got emergency room presentations, day surgeries, the costs of prescribing drugs for the various illnesses caused by the use of these substances. So that's in healthcare. And under lost productivity, we've got estimates of how many days of absenteeism, um, the number of people missing from the workforce because of premature death or illness or disability. So a lot of um, work um, scouring massive data sets. So we're ending up the big fat number, 46 billion, is the total cost in 2017 for the use of the impact of our drug use on Canadian society. And when you talk about something like absenteeism, do you think, too, it's a safe assumption that that number is probably low and that there are people that don't admit to that and will hide that? Yes, I should say, we've done this work extremely careful, and when in doubt, we've been conservative in our estimates. And obviously, there's some leaps you have to make beyond the available data, but we do that very cautiously, and always from the, the starting point that if we assume nothing, will this be more accurate than assuming nothing? And you know, we don't want to exaggerate. So there's a lot of additional costs that we couldn't get good data on and we haven't included. You mentioned in that second group as well, opioids and other illegal substances that the people are using. And we, we have talked about that, especially during the pandemic, in that overdose deaths in B.C. have been the highest. May saw the highest number, I think, of, of a recorded number of deaths in one month. So anything surprising or what do you take from those numbers when looking at, at specifically at opioid use? Yes, I mean, it puts in stark contrast the different impacts of different drugs. And there's one obvious trend was an upsurge in the impact of opioid use, um, the harms from opioid drugs. But in, interestingly, well, I don't want to just sound sort of, um, you know, this is just of academic interest. There's lives are being impacted by this, but actually the use of opioid drugs has been going down as a response, it would seem, to the well-known risks that are now apparent because of fentanyl largely. Um, of course, opioid drugs have always caused overdoses, but especially now. So there's been an increasing use of more stimulant drugs like cocaine and amphetamine. But nonetheless, over the years we've been look at, looking at opioids, if you look at the impact on years of life lost, the impact of heroin has almost caught up with alcohol, but it's still short. It's still way short in terms of economic costs. But we're weighing up the impact of something that will kill somebody instantly through an overdose against something like alcohol that might shave 10 to 15 years of life on average off a person. Of course, there are tragically young people dying in, from crashes and injuries and violence. 
um, and some other acute harms. But there's different kinds of impacts from these drugs. But in total, it's still alcohol and tobacco that punch the hardest and heaviest and have the most impact on our healthcare, crime and productivity. Hmm. And do you find it then, and, and not to only focus on, on the pandemic, but with what we're dealing with right now, we, we've heard anecdotally, or, or even looking at sales, alcohol sales in the beginning, whether it was people stockpiling or because we weren't going to restaurants and bars, having drinking at home instead, it did seem like there was an increase and that was how a lot of people chose to perhaps deal with the added stress. That's certainly the case in BC and it can't just be stockpiling because you know, you don't stockpile for three months. And the sales data has been substantially higher than normal if you consider like for like. So, I mean, I think some of it's stress and some of it's um, price because and convenience. So alcohol in BC is now delivered to our doorstep, provided we, um, you know, place a minimum quantity. Usually most delivery services require you have, say, 24 bottles of beer um, and there's no maximum. And you're paying the liquor store prices, sort of bar prices or restaurant prices. And so people can afford to drink more. Those who are still in work or have some pay tend to have more disposable income and more time um, and perhaps less consequences of um, drinking because you don't have to front up to work in, in a, <laughs> a good alert state um, first thing in the morning. So I think these are among the factors along with stress. What do we do you take away from this? Like you said, you've been doing this research for several years. Um, the 46 billion number comes from, from the data from 2017. What do you take away from this? Um, I think it's a good baseline. We, we want this to be a sort of a dynamic um, information um, service that we're providing Canadians. And we have this interactive um, website people can go and they can they can get a, a, a graph or you know, of trends or data the numbers of whether it's crimes or deaths in their jurisdiction in their province or territory in a particular year so we want people to be better informed about the relative harms of all of these substances and how they are changing and this is also to help with improved policy because we need to see if things are getting better or worse um, if we are to be able to grapple with the, these immense harms. And in terms of the scale of the problems, we're talking about something that's killing many, 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 many more people than COVID. I mean, COVID is, is terrible, and we know it's like an instant risk of a very nasty, you know, a good chance of an unpleasant illness and maybe even death. But the number of cases associated with just with alcohol far exceeds that of COVID. But our preparedness to take preventative action is almost non-existent um, compared with what we're prepared to do to avoid COVID. So I think it's just good for people to be aware of these, these, you know, the extent of the harms of these different substances and be informed. It is pretty shocking. You're right. When you look at the response to COVID and what we've done and we've been praised for doing the right thing and, and to stopping the curve and, and doing having this great response. But then when you look at these numbers, too, when you look at for 2017, that alcohol and tobacco use led to more than 66,000 preventable deaths in this country. Yes, and that would be at least the same rate. Um, you know, we're halfway through this year we've had COVID almost all of this year 
and it's less than a sixth, let alone a half of those numbers. Um, for alcohol alone, it's 18,000 preventable deaths. Um, and that, that exceeds all the other types of drug, apart from tobacco. Tobacco is the lead, but alcohol has more deaths associated with than all the other illicit drugs combined. Um, so it's important to get the scale of this um, you know, and, and to, to take that on board, both for policy making and just for how we live our lives and what we think are appropriate measures in the community to address different harms that we, we are at risk of. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Dr. Stockwell, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, if you have a loved one in care, you know how stressful and how trying these past few months have been, not only for the people living in care, but for their loved ones who have had their visits stopped. Thankfully, those visits are starting up again. What about pets? This story is about how pets in one particular care facility are providing a lot of support during a very isolated time. Talking about The Views, which is a site in Comox. It's the future site of what is likely BC in Canada's first publicly funded dementia village. And joining me to talk about the current members of the animal guests at that facility is Jane Murphy, President and CEO of Providence Living. Jane, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jill. So what animals, what pets are currently living at The Views? So living with us at The Views, we have three cats and four birds and numerous um, uh, fish uh, throughout uh, our number of units that we have on site. And what, what do the animals, do you think, bring to the people living there? Oh, the animals are so important. And, uh, you know, just to witness the interaction between the residents that obviously care for animals, uh, they just bring a tremendous source of comfort and companionship. And they're also a distraction sometimes when our residents are feeling a little anxious that uh, this is something that they can choose to focus on and interact with another living being. So it really is special. And uh, we're thrilled to, to have these animals live with us. And this is a a scenario or this is a model where I know there are some other facilities that have live-in animals, maybe one or two, or you might have staff members that that have assistance dogs, whether they're training them and they come to work, but it's not that widespread. Why do you think when when you look at something like this, that obviously there's such a positive reaction that it's not more common? I don't know why it's not more common. I think it's just starting to um, engage with pets. And once we started to do that, and for us, that was 15 years ago with uh, a pet therapy um, with a black lab named Mm -hmm. Haley. And seeing the uh, positive reaction that residents had, then slowly over time, uh, we started to um, add um, our uh, animals that we have. We work closely with the residents, and it's the residents on the unit that decide if they want uh, a cat or a bird as part of their lives. So it is about uh, engaging with the residents and working through a process and uh, um, making it uh, a part of the everyday life in a home. And uh, But what we see is just uh, so positive and brings so much joy real moments of joy to our residents. And I think once you can experience that, then, you know, we look for ways that uh, we continue to do that.
And, and how do you deal then with some, whether it's residents or family members who might have allergies or might have fears of, I would, I would imagine not fish, but maybe dogs or the bigger animals? Well, we certainly uh, know our residents very, very well. And uh, as I said, it's a discussion amongst the residents and the staff on a particular unit and a decision whether to um, uh, have a bird or a cat in particular. Um, And there's some residents that are less animal lovers than others, and our staff are aware of that. And so it's really about creating choice for residents that love the animals and want to interact and also respecting those that do not as much. And uh, there's no expectation that a resident um, needs to uh, interact with the residents or participate in their care. So it's really a matter of choice. And we're also very conscious some residents do not want an animal uh, in their room. And so that's well indicated. And we're very respectful of that. So I think it's you know, in any family, you um, understand the issues and, and work with people and do our very best to make sure it works well for everybody, animal lovers and, and those that might have allergies or not be as keen. Uh, you mentioned this is something that's been in this particular facility for several years. Uh, I understand that it's it's also going to be applied to another dementia village when it's it's being planned for in Vancouver. Would you like to see other facilities also adopt this kind of pet friendly and having animals as part of the community uh, have that to, to adopt that model as well? Well, I think it really based on the philosophy of care that we strive towards about creating a wonderful quality of life for our residents. And so working with residents to see if this is something that would add to their quality of life, being very respectful of that. And if that is the case, then um, I would encourage um, others to um, uh, start to introduce uh, more pets and um, uh, have that as part of uh Uh, the home living for residents and staff alike. And did it change at all during the pandemic when when we did see stress levels heightened and visits that were stopped for a time? Do you think that it became even more important that there was this source of comfort for people? I absolutely think that is true, that the animals, um, as, as we know, they really sense when somebody is um, anxious or or feeling down, and um, they they tend to gravitate to towards those people um, and um, really uh, support them. And we had a, a a case of a elderly resident who really became quite sad and uh, was not eating as well. And uh, one of our cats, Joey, who lives on the unit with this resident, just really seemed to sense that. And he went repeatedly to her and would lie with her and spent a lot of time with her. And we really uh, feel that's part of what brought her out of her shell. And uh, she started eating and drinking again and uh, clearly, uh, you know, feeling better about things. So I think they have an incredibly important role um, in uh, supporting residents um, and probably particularly at times maybe where they're feeling a little bit anxious. All right. Well, I know it's a program that a lot of people would embrace for sure. Jane, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill.